You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment. Dr. Adam Cabell is an assistant professor in counseling at DePaul University and a counselor in private practice. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor, a certified career counselor, a nationally certified counselor, and a certified clinical trauma professional. Dr. Cabell has expertise in racial, generational, and complex trauma, as well as depression, anxiety, grief, and career development. In addition to all of this, Dr. Cabell is also trained in evidence-based practices, including EMDR, CPT, CBT, and progressive counting. In this episode, Jennifer and I interviewed Dr. Cabell on her work with marginalized communities and EMDR therapy. We're thrilled to speak with her about everything you'd want to know about this type of trauma-informed treatment. Dr. Autumn Cabell, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on today. Hello. <laughs> hello, hello. And do you prefer, um, for our purposes today, Dr. Autumn, Dr. Cabell, Autumn, w- what's your preference for the, for our show today? Um, Autumn is fine. Okay, perfect. It's a beautiful perfect. name, by the way. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for being yeah. here. Yes, we're so excited to learn more, me. to learn more about you and to learn more about your practice. Um, so, Autumn, one of the things that we start off with all of our guests asking is, when did you begin studying psychology? What kind of got you into this field? Yeah, so actually, believe it or not, I started to develop an interest in psychology after watching Dr. Phil. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. Yes. After so, so what age group are we thinking about? After school? <laughs> I was going to say, like, after school or during college? Like, I mean, I, I developed an interest in prices, right? But, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but, you know, when did you, when, when, when did this interest develop for you? Like, yeah. um, how old do you think you were? Yeah, so I was probably around my freshman year in high school, and I just randomly turned on the TV after school one day, and I um, heard Dr. Phil talking with people, and it seemed like he was really impacting their lives and changing their perspective, and so I was like, oh, I, I would like to do that. Now, as an adult, I realized that um, the counseling field is much different from what I was observing <laughs> with Dr. Phil. Um, yeah, that, that, is, that, that is entertaining. That's wonderful. I mean, that's so interesting because I think that's, we have a friend that absolutely loves Dr. Phil. <laughs> I know Jen is thinking about her right now. And, and it's just like, it always causes so much controversy in our friend group about when we talk about it because it is so different, right? But it's, it's so interesting. And what do you think specifically about, you know, listening to Dr. Phil kind of, was it the impact on people or their reaction or like, what do you think it was? Yeah, it was definitely the impact on, um, on people. And I would listen to, you know, their issues and, you know, I would think through like what I would say to them. And so Mm -hmm. to see his interactions with them and then see him also, um, usually like provided resources after, um, the conversations with him, see him, you know, help or try to help them after the show, um, it sparked my interest in, okay, what happens after this? And so after 
uh, freshman year in, in high school, I was able to take um, a psychology class in in my high school, and I was able to mm-hmm. take it for two years. So, you know, that experience really sparked me wanting to gain more knowledge. And fortunately, I had access to that for throughout my high school experience through that psychology class. That's amazing. And and then did you go on to college to study psychology or did you study something else? Yeah. So in um, undergrad at first, I, um, I majored in biology, but as a lot of undergrads do, I changed my major. Um, and so I, I moved from biology to psychology um, and I ended up um, I went to Florida State and I ended up um, doing an honors thesis. I had a mentor who was a professor there and she, she was actually in the College of Medicine, but she was a psychologist and she was doing research on um, perinatal depression. And I wow, got very okay. interested in understanding depression, understanding depression during pregnancy for um, racially marginalized women. And that kind of solidified my interest in psychology, but then also my interest in research as well, too, in my undergrad experience. That's amazing. Wow. I mean, I think that's really obviously impactful on you and, and, and studying that particular population. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I knew nothing about it before going in and having that experience with her in her lab. But in seeing her and we were able to work in clinics, so I would go to um, clinics and talk to the women um, about how they were feeling. And I was really taken aback, actually, by how common it was for them during that that Mm -hmm. time in their life. Um, Even as an undergraduate student, I, I just didn't expect so many women to be navigating that at that time. Wow. That is that's amazing that you got to have that experience as an undergrad, because oftentimes psychology in undergraduate is, is more kind of of a basic knowledge and basic experience. You don't really get to get that whole big picture that you were able to see. Yeah, definitely. And that involvement in research too. And then it Mm -hmm. also sparked my interest in pursuing a PhD program later on. And so that, that experience in my undergrad was very impactful for me. And what was a PhD and was it in uh, clinical psychology, counseling psychology? What, what type of um, doctor did you receive? Yeah, so I got my master's in school counseling and then I went on to get my PhD in counselor education and supervision. So training, um, master's level um, counselors. Oh, fantastic. And, and is yeah. that the position that you currently, what, what is the position you currently do? Yeah, so I'm currently an assistant professor in counseling at DePaul University in Chicago. And um, I also have a small private practice where I see clients virtually. Oh, wow. Can you um, talk to us a little bit? You had mentioned when you were in your undergrad um, schooling and you had done research working with um, marginalized communities. Can you tell us kind of what sparked your interest to become working to or interest in working with those communities? Yeah, so um, I would say as a black woman after um, or during my high school experience um, and through my high school classes in psychology, I really started thinking more about 
my own experiences, mm-hmm. um, seeing concerns within my family, um, within my community. And so when I went to undergrad and I decided to change my major from biology to psychology, I knew that um, whatever I did in psychology, I wanted it to be focused on um, on marginalized communities and primarily racially marginalized communities and to help you know my community even um, as they navigate mental health and, and wellness. And what are some of the topics that um, impact marginalized communities that you found through your research, through your studies, through all your education? What, what are some of the things that you feel like are the top topics or issues that um, you come across? Yeah, so I, I would say that, um, you know, my focus over time has developed. So that that experience in a lab really prompted my interest in depression. And, um, and so that is something that has stuck with me throughout my education and experiences that I tend to work with people who have experienced depression, who maybe at times have, have been suicidal. Um, but then also as I um, grew more and learned more, I really realized the impact of trauma and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in particular generational trauma and multiple different cultures experience trauma and generational trauma. But I think that it's unfortunately very common in, in marginalized communities for traumatic experiences to be passed down and re-experienced through, through various generations. And so that also plays a huge role in all of the other things that I'm interested in, depression, anxiety, grief and loss. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for a lot of people from marginalized backgrounds, it stems from um, trauma. And mm-hmm. so with that, marginalized communities can experience a lot of trauma, but they also have a lot of resiliency and mm-hmm. ability to grow and navigate and learn from that. And so as I've continue to develop on my professional journey, I really try to focus not only on trauma and all of those other mental health concerns that people can experience, but also focus on building um, and fostering resilience too within communities. I think that's so interesting. I mean, like, I think that it's interesting because some of the things that you studied, I remember Jennifer studying, um, you had done work with um, anxiety and, and pregnancy, right, John? Mm-hmm. I think that you had done that. And, oh, a lot yeah. of, and a lot of the work that I had done was because I am a, a, I identify a Latino uh, a woman. And mm-hmm. a lot of the work that I do is with acculturation. So I still still look at, you know, folks, even in my personal life, sometimes like with levels of acculturation, just because that's really how they move through the world and it helps them navigate. But that other piece that you just said, the resiliency and the grit, yeah. um, mm-hmm. the determination is really something that I think um, at least in my therapy with my clients that are, um, you know, sometimes first gen or even just newly immigrated, um, it's tapping into that, isn't it? Like that, mm-hmm. tapping into that, that, that source, that, that wealth of, of resiliency, even in these difficult times. Exactly. I think yeah. so, so often in just the media and society, we talk about marginalized communities from a deficit basis. Mm-hmm. And so I think reframing that as resiliency, as growth um, is important. Yeah, it's such a hopeful way of looking at any situation. I think we, we tend to, 
at times focus on like the negative things that have happening or even focusing on the trauma. But when we look at kind of what is going well and what has been working and what we can continue to build on that hope is just, I feel like it just, it gives so much more. Exactly. Um, and we'll get that, we'll get to kind of learning more about trauma and your work with trauma, but what are some of the barriers to treatment that you see with these, with marginalized communities? What are some of the things that kind of prevent people from seeking help or getting the treatment that they may need? Yeah, well, I think across the board as a whole, um, we struggle with um, increasing access to mental health services. And so, you know, I, I think regardless of race, background, culture, um, navigating, just having insurance benefits even mm-hmm. to be able mm-hmm. to um, see a provider for your mental health is, is something that, you know, we need to improve as a, as a country. Um, but I, when I think about marginalized communities and the specific needs that they might um, have, it might include things like having access to providers that look like you, who have mm-hmm. similar shared experiences as you. And that might, that's not the most important thing in therapy. You can work with someone cross-culturally or someone who has a, a different background from you. Um, but for a lot of people who maybe mental health counseling is, it's their first time considering that, that representation piece might be something that's at the forefront of their mind. And, and we definitely need to increase diversity in the mental health profession. And then- I completely agree. Sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I was just gonna say too, in addition to that representation piece is also that stigma too, that can be associated with mental health. Mm. Unfortunately, still in 2023, a lot of communities um, maybe have some conceived notions about mental health or disconnect mental health from health. Um, Mm -hmm. And so don't seek out those services. I know, I think that's well put. Um, One of the things that I've I've seen at least, again, going back to the Latino community, because that's the one that I work with the most is that there is this, you know, obviously the stigma that what is there's something wrong with you let's keep this in the family mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. let's not discuss you know our air out our dirty laundry to other people um or as you said i want to speak to somebody but maybe i can't find a provider that speaks spanish or right. you know what i found a lot is like um when i always offer like a phone consultation before i see folks in my mm-hmm. private practice and that's when they can ask any questions and the first question is like oh do you speak spanish and then they immediately code code switch right to spanish mm-hmm. And because they want to make sure that I am a native speaking Spanish, you know, person versus someone that may have learned it in school, because there is some cultural differences that happen, you know, even though I'm not, Mm -hmm. you know, not telling people not to learn a different language, you know, Mm -hmm. but when it's sometimes culturally, some people have a preference and the preference could be that they want someone that grew up maybe with the same traditions or customs. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult to, to find. I mean, I'm, um, Evanston, Evanston based, but it's really close to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So there is a big, um, you know, Latino community, but I can imagine that there's many people that listen to this podcast that live in communities that don't have, you know, mm-hmm. providers that look like them or speak the same language, you know, and right. I, that could be a huge barrier, like depending on where you're living too. Right. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. You brought up consultations. I also do consultations and oftentimes people ask, you know, have you ever worked with someone who is navigating the same things that I'm navigating mm-hmm. so it's 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 having that experience working with individuals with you know 
varying presenting concerns, but then also I think that added layer of maybe having some shared experiences, even myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's very important, I think. And here's an interesting part, because I feel like, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but um, what you just said, having the shared experiences and then sharing that in therapy, I, I don't know mm-hmm. about you, Autumn, but I, I was very, we were very much taught, like, you know, not to talk about ourselves, you know, so mm-hmm. it's like, right. it's, it's so, you know, it's so like judiciously placed these things that I have to say to somebody, you know, because I it's, but I guess I've seen a shift in that. I don't know. Have you seen that as well? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I share with my clients more about my identity, identifying as a black woman. Also, um, my family is from the Caribbean. And so mm-hmm. I, I also will share that with my clients as well, too, because sometimes I, I have clients who also are from the Caribbean or also mm-hmm. um, Latino clients. And so mm-hmm. there is a lot of shared cultural experience mm-hmm. in that. And I think it's important for people to feel safe in the therapeutic environment, especially if it's their first time or maybe they're a little bit reluctant. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I think it's such a big step for somebody to take to seek out therapy, to seek out help. And I think, you know, there there are things that will make them just feel a little bit more connected and make it feel a little bit more comfortable for them to go through that process. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. How um, can some, how can people circumvent these barriers, both clients and providers? Yeah, well, I think as far as addressing the stigma, I think uh, talking about it within your family, within your friend group, um, amongst your peers, talking about your mental health, how people are doing is, is important to start to, to break down that that stigma. And then also, Mm -hmm. you know, if you do end up seeking services, normalizing that even within your, your, and then as far as finding providers, uh, finding providers to fit your needs, you know, it can be challenging. I'm not going to lie, but, but I think recognizing that you don't have to go with the first person that you come across, Mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes, people might not be as used to like testing out different primary care physicians um, or, you know, interviewing them, but you really can do those consultations and meet with multiple people to get a sense of their experience, their background, and then also just get a sense of the things that maybe you can explain, just the energy between the the two of you. And and if you feel like this is someone that you're, you could be comfortable with. I think it's really great because I think sometimes it's like John was saying before, it's so mm-hmm. hard to even go into therapy and then, you know, and then feeling like, Oh no, it doesn't fit. But it's kind of like Cinderella's shoe. Like, you know, like it's like, it's right. Not, the first one you <laughs> pick doesn't always fit. You know what I mean? Exactly. So sometimes you have to, and it's okay to try that, you know, and, and it's actually, um, and I don't know if this is something that helps at least my clients. Like I do talk to them about how I might not be that person. And that is totally okay because the mm-hmm. purpose is to find that person exactly or we have like a John I'm bringing up our friend again which she <laughs> she has she's had multiple therapists throughout her life for different purposes and we think it's fabulous that she figured out this person was yes. really well suited to x y and z you know topic right Jen mm-hmm, absolutely and I always think to like if I went and got my hair done and was not like satisfied with what 
my hair look like exactly. or the hairstylist. <laughs> I wouldn't continue to go back to somebody that I didn't totally. feel like doing a good job yeah. cutting my hair. But I think a yeah. lot of people feel that way with the therapist of like, oh, well, I already started with them or they already told them my story and I don't like, I, I don't want them to feel bad. And I think it's, it's absolutely okay to, to really kind of test people out to see if, if it's a good fit because you won't continue and you won't get a lot out of it if you're not comfortable with the person you're working with. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing I'd say too is um, a lot of people know to search on psychology today and you can find Mm -hmm. therapists and a lot of therapists are on psychology today, but also, you know, in particular for marginalized communities, you know, looking through directories that are maybe geared towards working with minoritized populations. So Mm -hmm. things like inclusive therapists, um, uh, therapy for black girls, you know, websites Mm -hmm. that can maybe help to help in tailoring um, the pool. Yeah, and I completely agree. And there, actually, there's so many um, Facebook groups, like I'm part of one for uh, for Latinx therapists in the Chicagoland community. And it was just like as a resource of like, who's out there with me? You know, like are we right. all by ourselves? And these brilliant women um, had come up with this idea somewhere in pandemic. And so it was really great because then we can share the resources. But the, the fact is, is that, you know, people can seek that out, right? So they can mm-hmm. Google search it now. And I also think that, and again, going back generationally, it seems as if so many people nowadays, and especially because your work in the university, I, I, mm-hmm. I wonder if you see it as well in, in your work is I see so many young people that are so open to the idea of therapy and mm-hmm. talking about their feelings and just figuring things out and, and identifying things. And I wonder if that also is something that you see with this current generation. Yeah, I definitely, I, I also see, um, because I started off in school counseling, I, I still work with mm-hmm. teens and young mm-hmm. adults in my practice. And I definitely see a shift in just the willingness to engage in therapy, and maybe even some of this younger generation educating their parents and, and older generation about the value of seeking out counseling and mental health services too. Absolutely. There definitely seems to be a shift with younger generations of not having as much stigma attached to seeing a therapist. It's almost right. kind of like, well, who's your therapist? And it's kind of part of their like discussions, whereas older generations, it's it's still not a part of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that even like us talking about it and having you know you on the, the show today um, and is a way to circumvent that barrier, right? Mm-hmm. So discussing it and normalizing it and in the building that I'm in, I, I do let people know like there's, there's, we're chock full of therapists, like every single floor. <laughs> and it can't just be that we're all seeing one person. You know what I mean? So it's like, we have to, obviously people are coming to see us and that kind of also uh, helps people, uh, you know, kind of cross that barrier of like, this is okay, this is normal, or, or this is safe, or this is mm-hmm. healthier, or, or I hear my neighbor talking about it, or always refer to somebody. Um, those are all great ways to circumvent um, that barrier of not having, you know, those resources or not exactly. seeking them out. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, before the pandemic, people might <clears throat> not have been as open to seeing people for telehealth Mm -hmm. or virtual services and so with that representation piece now a lot of therapists are doing telehealth as well and so it can broaden the pool of people then maybe just who's in your area you can expand to see who in your state offers telehealth services and and maybe have a higher likelihood of, of finding someone that you connect with 
especially for those folks in those rural areas, right? Like that maybe they they Mm -hmm. can't gain access. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, um, we're going to shift our discussion a little bit. Can you talk to us about EMDR? Yeah, yeah. So first, when I talk to my clients about EMDR, I always break down what it stands for first. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah, I forget yeah. one of the letters and I'm like, what is exactly. it? Yeah, okay. Exactly. Sometimes I can too, but it stands for <laughs> eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's really a, a therapy approach that um, has been well studied and well supported in a variety of different populations from military populations to um, hospital populations, you know, really is gaining mm-hmm. a lot of, of research support. Um, but it's, it's used to help people to reprocess traumatic events that might have happened in their lives. And um, even though eye movement is, is in the acronym, um, it doesn't always just have to be through eye movements. I think sometimes when people think of EMDR, they just think of, um, you know, someone waving their fingers and moving their eyes back and forth. But yeah, be- <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so exactly. excited to hear that it's not just that. Yeah. 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 It can be through sound. It can be through um, tapping. Um, but the the purpose of that is to help people keep one foot in the past as they remember things that might have been traumatic and one foot in the present by having some level of distraction and activating both sides of of their brain. And and so um, EMDR, it it takes time and there's different phases of it, but over time people can reprocess traumatic events. And then most importantly, through reprocessing those traumatic events, really try to unpack some of the negative beliefs that they might have developed about themselves and about the world as a result of some of the trauma that they've experienced. Um, so I, I think I think sometimes people get distracted with the eye movement part of it, but it really is about helping people to deconstruct maybe those negative belief systems that they've developed as a response to trauma that, um, that was oftentimes outside of their, their control. So in, when, when you say reprocessing, I know Jennifer and I understand it, but just to break that down, it would be mm-hmm. so that they can, yeah. you know, basically learn to live with this trauma, but having thought about it in a different way. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I, I always tell my clients, it's not that you'll think about this and it'll be roses and sunshine, but maybe mm-hmm. when you do think about it, you don't think as harshly about yourself or mm. the role that you played or your future as you do right now. So so it's interesting because I, I feel like EMDR has really exploded like in the last, yes. I don't know, like maybe decade, right, John? I mean, we yeah, used to absolutely. not know anything, anyone that did EMDR yeah. and now it's like, feels like uh, we're the only ones that don't do EMDR, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, so would you mind walking us through, like, say like, you know, one of us was a client coming in with, X, Y, and Z trauma, and we're seeking out EMDR, not really knowing more than what, you know, we just kind of briefly talked about that this is the Mm -hmm. way to reprocess that trauma and maybe think about things differently. What would, can you just walk us through what a session would look like? And, and then we'll get to some other questions we have about that too. 
Yeah, I would say first and foremost, because EMDR is a trauma-informed approach, the counseling relationship is still about establishing rapport, building trust and safety. Um, so all of those things need to happen first before, um, or before we dive into um, really deep trauma work. And so the first couple sessions will just be a, a counselor getting to know their client, um, maybe even giving them some assessments or some questionnaires that they might um, respond to, to get to know a little bit more about the symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, and then also provide them with some education about trauma. You know, oftentimes we, we say the word trauma, but we don't, not everyone understands the impact that that has on your body, on mm -hmm. the everyday interactions or triggers that, that activate, um, activate you. And, and sometimes clients have a hard time connecting, oh, that argument that I had with my spouse really isn't about you know, whatever was happening with my spouse, it's really about something that happened, you know, in my childhood. And mm -hmm. so the beginning parts of therapy is really about helping people to have a little bit more awareness and understanding about how trauma impacts them in their their day-to-day -day life. And then um, in a session where let's say all of that stuff happens, there's trust, there's understanding symptoms, there's um, understanding what trauma is and, and what that looks like in, in someone's life. Um, an EMDR session uh, looks like uh, it can be virtual, it can also be in person. Um, mm -hmm. And it looks like a, a therapist asking a client to um, think back to uh, an image, uh, a memory, a smell, even a sound, mm -hmm. even um, that that connects them back to that traumatic experience that they have. And throughout the session, the um, the counselor will be providing that bilateral stimulation, which I know sounds fancy, but really <laughs> that, that distraction piece of through eye movements of having someone move their eyes back and forth through sound, so it might be hearing um, sound through one ear and then the other ear. Um, and it's for short increments of time. It's maybe 30 seconds or mm. 10 seconds, or sometimes it can be as, as fast as five seconds. And then having the person share about what's coming up for them. It could be thoughts, it could be feelings, it could be body sensations. And we do that until a person is what we call desensitized to that original image or memory. Um, and then from there, and that might not happen in one session, it might take mm -hmm. multiple sessions, especially if something happened very early on in life or was very um, traumatizing. It might take multiple mm -hmm. sessions to not be as physically, emotionally sensitized to those memories. But from there, we move on to that belief system. So what was the negative belief and how can, how can we insert a positive belief into uh, whatever that traumatic experience was? Mm -hmm. And, and um, again, providing that bilateral stimulation, that distraction piece as people connect that traumatic event that used to be associated with a negative belief to connecting it with a positive belief that they can move forward with in their present day. I, I think that's fabulous. I mean, that, that, what a great explanation, just because I feel yes. like it's, 
I know Jennifer and I understand it, but way back when we did not, you know what I mean? I know that I would always ask people, I'm like, I'm like, do you get this, John? And she's always like, no, I don't understand this either, you know? But, but I guess one of the questions I have is a question that comes up a lot with clients that have trauma that maybe I've seen is, do you have to tell the therapist all exactly. the details of the trauma? Is yeah. that something that you think is um, an important piece in EMDR? No. So actually that really great part of EMDR, the client is really doing a lot of the work. Like we're providing that, that distraction piece and we're timing it out. But the, the counselor actually has to know very little about the, the trauma. Actually, they don't really have to know anything at all. They'll, they'll maybe ask you some ratings about how distressing it is, um, how much you believe that negative belief. But um, outside of that, they really don't need to know the details. And the client doesn't even have to talk about the details. Um, after each round of, of that bilateral simulation, the counselor will check in on, you know, ask the client what's coming up for them. And they can share as much or as little as, as they would like to share in those moments. And so there's been times where I've done EMDR sessions with clients, and I actually know very little about the trauma and the mm -hmm. details of the trauma that they're reprocessing. I think that in a wow. sense, maybe I might be wrong on this, but I feel like that would be helpful for some people in order to avoid re-traumatization, mm -hmm. right? I mean, exactly. okay. And that, is that the purpose of why there isn't this yeah. push for um, finding out every last little detail? Yeah. And everyone is different. Some people, they need to say it out loud. They need to kind of get their thoughts out and, and their feelings out. And some people that is very traumatizing even to say out loud to mm -hmm. someone that, you know, they're just developing a relationship with, you know, kind of their deepest, darkest memories. Um, mm -hmm. And so th there's a spectrum as far as how much people want to or, or are able to share too. The other thing is that with trauma, we know that it can mess with our memory. We might not, mm -hmm. we know that something happened. We might not have all of the pieces of the story together. Um, and so, you know, if even remembering the trauma is something that's difficult, um, you know, again, they don't have to try to put those pieces together or explain it to someone who wasn't there. Yeah, absolutely. So I know, Adam, we've had other guests on our show talking about different other types of trauma treatment. What would be some reasons why somebody would want to work, would, would want to work with EM with an EMDR therapist, what might, might be some reasons for somebody who's experienced trauma to seek out this type of treatment? Yeah, so it's it's different from traditional talk therapy, mm -hmm. um, and so maybe someone who that traditional talk therapy hasn't been um, helpful, or maybe they feel like they've kind of hit a plateau with that. Um, and it might not be anything that their therapist is doing wrong or anything like that. They might have a really solid relationship with their therapist, but in unpacking the trauma, there's just, there can be a barrier there. And so maybe people who would like to try something new to um, heal from, from their traumas. And then like you mentioned, maybe people who don't want to talk out loud about their, their past trauma or want to share very little with a therapist about what they've experienced. And, you know, for me, I, I really appreciate research. And so mm -hmm. I have had clients who um, have come across EMDR, maybe had a friend and 
um, have done some of their own research on it. And so it, it really is something that has grown over the past 30 years in mm -hmm. its support and in its research. And so people who also are interested in trying uh, approaches that are kind of cutting edge and that there's new developing um, research on them as well. Have you found EMDR to be very effective? Like, you know, everyone always yeah. talks about um, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT as being like the gold standard, but how do you feel like EMDR uh, works in, in that world, in that realm of effectiveness? Well, the, the great thing about EMDR too is that you can integrate it into any approach. So I also, mm. you know, use CBT. And so oftentimes that, that initial work that I do with client, the, the work before the work is from that CBT lens. And then, you know, we get them to a place where they're ready to unpack that um, and more intensely using EMDR. And so I, I think that EMDR complements a lot of other therapy approaches too. And, and that's, that's also why it, it can be so effective. But mm -hmm. from, from my perspective, you know, the clients that I've seen that I've had EMDR sessions with, it really has made all the difference in helping to reduce some of those day-to-day -day symptoms that they're experiencing. That's great. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, um, when we record like not seeing each other, <laughs> always like, right. you, sorry. Um, uh, one of the things I was going to ask was, you know, in case, like, let's say, I'm just, you know, throwing this out, if like, because I see clients sometimes, and um, after not seeing them for a while, we'll have like booster sessions, maybe they'll, mm -hmm. they'll come home from college or something, or maybe they've, you know, left already, and they, they something new or, or good or bad has happened. Do you find that EMDR also will a, a lot for uh, booster sessions, or if people get traumatized in a different way, or, you know, maybe they have something that's similar, but not the same type of trauma that's happening. Yeah, yeah. And there's also more and more research on EMDR being used for things outside of trauma, for anxiety, for um, addiction as well. Mm. And so, you know, it could be that you go and you go to therapy and you've worked through something that has happened, but unfortunately, something else happens in your life. And so having reprocessing that through an EMDR lens can, can be helpful. It doesn't have to be kind of a one and done situation. Mm -hmm. That's great. Can you um, Adam, talk to us a little about what, what should people expect or not expect in therapy? Yeah, I think um, sometimes people come to therapy because a problem is happening in their life and they want someone who's going to solve that, that problem for them. And uh, it can be kind of unsettling to realize that your therapist can't solve them. And yet <laughs> you wouldn't want them to because they don't know all of the different dynamics. You know, they see you right. maybe once, twice a week and they, they'll never know enough information to really tell you how to, to solve a problem. But what therapy can do is give you a space to talk about the things that are happening in your life, give you skills to be able to navigate them, help you to develop a different perspective in order to make different choices um, or do different behaviors in your day-to-day -day life. Therapy can also be um, education too. Like you can learn about trauma from, from therapy. You can learn about anxiety, depression, help make those connections 
about how trauma manifests for you because it is it is different from person to person. And so I, I think that that increasing that self-awareness, that self-confidence um, in order to be able to navigate the stressors that you're experiencing in, in your life is, is something that that therapy can do um, versus kind of expecting your therapist to give you all of this advice on how to solve every, every little thing that, that happens in, in your life. Really, it's about empowering you to be able to make those decisions for yourself. I like that. I, I really do. I mm-hmm. think that's great to, to, you know, again, another way to cross over barriers with people and not just marginalized communities, but just any people that come in to see you is that, right. you know, you have the power to make these changes without me, the therapist, you know, telling you what to do, because that is a question I often get asked is give me some advice. I'm like, I have yet to give anybody advice other than like, you know, I advise you can park on the street, you know, like I advise that you right. pay the meter, you know what I mean? Like that's the only advice I usually um, get. But, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't really talk a lot about your work at DePaul and I'm, I've got to disclose, I am mm-hmm. a blue demon, so graduate. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, I love DePaul, um, but, but, you know, in your work with DePaul and your work in private practice, um, what do you, you know, out of those two realms, what do you like the most about your work that you do? Yeah, well, I think the, the thing that's in common in my work as a professor and, and my work as a counselor is that teaching aspect is that informing people about um, about the impacts of trauma, about what grief looks like, about depression. You know, I really try to empower my clients with more knowledge about what they're experiencing. And then I also try to um, uh, make help develop my, my students to be um, competent, you know, counselors. But I think the, the thing that is uh, similar about both is that that teaching aspect, that imparting, imparting knowledge, mm-hmm. that being ability to communicate, you know, eye movement desensitization, mm-hmm. reprocessing, and all of the research on on treatment modalities like that in a way that people can understand, and that in a way that um, they can move forward in their life maybe informing other people or doing things differently because they have more understanding and and knowledge moving forward. And then I I think also the other thing with both of my roles is, is just, again, like that destigmatizing mental health of Mm -hmm. making therapy, not be something scary from the student perspective, who's learning how to, to work with people and also from the, the client perspective making therapy a place that feels safe, that feels like a place to make mistakes, to uh, feels like a place of learning um, and, and feels like a, a place of warmth um, as well. Really great. I mean, I, yeah, it's like a marriage of, of the best worlds. You know, you're, you're teaching across mm-hmm. the, the board and it's wonderful. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think it's something that Jessica and I started the podcast as a way to help kind of destigmatize and demystify therapy. And it's, and it's, it just, it always makes us feel good when we hear other people are, are doing that as well. (laughs) So that's wonderful. Um, Autumn, what are some of the most frequently asked questions you get personally or professionally from people when they find out what you do? Yeah. Um, 
one of the the questions that I get is um, is is oftentimes when I'm working with people who have experienced trauma is really like what is trauma like what does this mean if I have experienced mm -hmm. trauma does this mean that I will have substance use issues or relationship issues for the rest of my life or is this something that I can heal from and I can grow from and and so I really try to hope that what you're experiencing now doesn't have to be forever um, and try to express to them that we do have a lot more knowledge than we had even five, 10 years ago about how to help people who have experienced trauma. Um, you know, in my master's program, there wasn't a, a trauma class. Um, mm -hmm. I learned about trauma through my work experiences. And now, you know, even at DePaul, right, we have a, a crisis and trauma class. So things have really changed and grown a lot in, in this field and in particular in treating trauma. And so, um, you know, when people ask me, you know, is it going to be like this forever? You know, what does this mean? I really try to instill, instill hope. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. I mean, that's it, like the touchstone, right? For, for whether you're working with your students in class or whether you're working with uh, people in private practices, just to instill that, that hope that the thing mm -hmm. um, What is something that you wish people, I mean, I guess, we as therapists and, and working in the mental health field, people have a lot of assumptions about, you know, our work, <laughs> us, us, you yeah. know, like, are you, are you like, you know, analyzing me? And I'm like, no, I'm thinking, did I turn off the stove? You know, like that's <laughs> usually what I'm thinking about, you know, um, but what is something like that you'd want to demystify? Because it's really the purpose of like Jennifer was saying was that mm -hmm. we did this podcast because people were, it was during pandemic and people were contacting us and we obviously can't see everybody, but like, yeah. you know, people were really open to that idea because they finally had time on their hands or, or they were struggling or mm -hmm. they, you know, they were just in a different place. And like, and I feel like so much. I, yeah. a lot of it due to the pandemic and in, in some good ways because people are seeking out services, but we're still trying to demystify. We're still trying to figure out ways to like make it, mm -hmm. you know, just not as a scary place. And, and mm -hmm. so we ask those questions. So I guess what, what is something you'd want to demystify today as our final question? Yeah, I think um, something that is important to remember, right? We're talking about the power of counseling and, and what counseling can do, but I think it's important for people to remember that the road to healing is not linear. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Doesn't always feel good. You know, counseling is hard. While it is a supportive, empathetic, warm place, right? Hard, it's hard to discuss these things and you might not always feel great even in the moment. <laughs> with your your counselor you might they might ask you a question that really hits a button mm -hmm. um and that doesn't necessarily mean that that counselor did anything wrong or that you can't have a relationship with them or, you know uh that it's over but but recognizing that sometimes in this growth it's uncomfortable and sometimes there's setbacks too so even if you've made a lot of progress you've done seven, eight EMDR sessions and feel like you're making a lot of headway in um, your trauma work and your healing, you know, something could happen tomorrow that 
hits a button that maybe you were mm-hmm. in a way that you did prior to doing all of this work, it doesn't necessarily mean that that work doesn't matter. It just means that maybe there's more to be done. Um, and, and so don't not letting that idea that healing is not linear get in the way of you progressing. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people can get um, discouraged or, mm-hmm. um, or even like feel like they're doing something wrong if they're not making the progress that they thought they would be making. When really it took a long time to develop the patterns and the thought cycles, the behaviors, and it's going to take a long time new and do something new consistently. Um, and so I, I try to also, I think, demystify just the healing process that it's not you start counseling and eight, 10, 12 sessions later, you're, <laughs> you're out and you're ready to go that it can really take some time and, and it can really mm-hmm. take some highs and lows in, in the experience as well. So true. So true. I think I, I just love kind of how you everything that you put together for us today and all of the wisdom that you shared with us. Dr. Cabell, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. And for more information on Dr. Autumn Cabell, you can find more information about her at www.thecareerandwellnesscenter.com or email her at info at C-A-R-E-E-R-A-N-D w-e-l-l-n-e-s-s-c-e-n-t-e-r.com so that's info at career and wellness center.com thank you for listening and as always subscribe to the everything you want to know about therapy but we're too afraid to ask podcast everywhere you listen to good podcasts and give us your five-star review follow us on instagram at therapy underscore podcast underscore for updates additional information and message us topics and questions you always wanted to know, but were too afraid to ask. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts and keep up with episode updates on Instagram. Follow us at therapy underscore podcast underscore. You can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now.